following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Today is Palm Sunday. It's uh, the beginning of what we traditionally call the Passion Week, the final week of Jesus Christ before he would uh, go to the cross. And so for this Sunday as well as next Sunday, we're going to do a brief two-part series um, for this Easter season that we're simply calling the good news. And today will be part one, and next Sunday for Easter will be part two. Uh, thanks to our brother Matt for doing this graphic for us. I'm always amazed at the talent in our church. I just sort of describe something to him. <laughs> Next thing I know, he materialized it into an actual graphic. So it's always amazing to see the, the talents that God has blessed our church with. Um, in this brief two-part series for this Easter holiday, I want to unpack this idea of the gospel as a message of good news. And um, so why don't we pray together, and then we'll Look at the particular angle that I want to unpack for us this morning. Father, as we come to another Easter celebration, we pray that our eyes would be open to really grasp, to apprehend the fullness of this message, that you sent your Son to the earth on our behalf to lay down his life and die for us. And out of the true understanding of that message, let there be real worship that comes forth from our hearts as we celebrate what you have done for us. May Christ be exalted in every person's heart here, spurred on by the faith that you alone can give us. May the impact of the good news of this holiday season be ours as we are struck afresh by all that you've done for us. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the Gospel of Mark... um, Mark begins his story of Jesus with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, Jesus used this word gospel repeatedly when he described the message that his disciples were to go into all the world with, proclaiming a message about himself. Uh, when he refers to this woman who anointed his feet with perfume, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 13, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Mark 13, verse 10, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So repeatedly, Jesus refers to his message as the gospel. This word gospel literally means good news, good news. The Greek is euangelion, which we get the word evangelism from in our day today. And what it's really fundamentally saying is this, by calling Jesus' message the gospel, is At the heart of the Christian message is good news about what God has done for us. And I I want to highlight that this Easter season because this is the truth. 
the longer you are in church, the longer you've been a Christian, the more the focus seems to be on what we're supposed to do, on the behavior expected of us. And I think somewhere in all of the commandments, all of the expectations that are placed on us, we lose sight of the fact that at the heart of what we believe is good news. Good news about what God has already done for us. The gospel is fundamentally not a message about good advice. Good advice. I I find it interesting that with the rise of the internet, there's been all of these words that have suddenly flooded into our vocabulary, like selfie and all these things. That, you know, and one of them is this term that's arisen in the last 10 years or so called life hack. Have you heard of that? A life hack? A life hack is basically some kind of technique or strategy that you adopt for yourself that helps to basically improve your life. It's basically this idea like you always did something this way, but you could do better. And if you would only do this, this life hack, life would be so much better for you. Um, And the internet is filled with these life hacks, you know, these bits of advice from the masses. Like, did you know that if your headlight is all yellow and and oxidized and, and foggy, that you can actually make it look brand new by buffing it out with toothpaste? I mean, I I didn't know that. Um, Did you know that you can get rid of furniture scratches by just rubbing it with a walnut, okay? Just go to town on that furniture with a walnut, and suddenly these scratches disappear. We had this big gouges on our kitchen table, and our daughter, Noelle, heard about this life hack. So she got a walnut, and she tried it, and it was like magic. Like, suddenly all those scratches were gone. We're like, this is amazing. Did you know that it's actually really easy to cut a birthday cake with dental floss? Instead of actually using a knife, you can cut it much more evenly and easily if you use dental floss. Okay. Um, back in 2008, our family with Dave's family, my brother's family, went to Disney World in Orlando. And uh, while we were on our second furlough as missionaries uh, from Kenya, and uh, before we went on this Disney trip, I bought this book called uh, The Unofficial Guide to Walt Disney World, okay? This thing weighs in at like 800 pages. But I literally read that thing cover to cover, all right? It was like I was doing a doctoral dissertation on Disney World. I'm usually not that way with vacations. I I like to take it easy on vacations and just relax. But Disney World is a different monster, you know? If you don't go into Disney World with a plan of attack, you're not going to get nearly as much out of it. This book was insane. It it tells you literally uh, which restaurants have the shortest lines, uh, which bathrooms are the best to use, Uh, where to get your stroller rental from. Um, It plans out exactly the whole schedule for which rides you ought to go on. So uh, after reading through this guide, I basically put together this war plan for Orlando. And when we got there, like literally from park to park, I was like a general calling the troops. And I was like, Dave, you and Jeannie, go get fast passes to these rides. 
Betty and I are going to go get him for these rides, and we'll meet you at this common point. Then you take the girls who want to ride that ride, and I'll take, and we'll meet at this restaurant because it's the shortest line and the best food. And by mid-afternoon, in every park we went to, we had pretty much ridden every ride we wanted to ride and watched every show we wanted to watch. And then the kids were bored, and they wanted to go back to the rental house so they could swim for the rest of the day, you know? And that was just the way we did Disney that year, you know? Um, good advice is worth its weight in gold, isn't it? It often helps us to get out of ruts or shows us a better way that we couldn't figure out by ourselves. But at the core of the gospel message, it's not about God giving us good advice for how we can find a better life. The gospel is also fundamentally not a message about obeying rules. The Bible does contain teachings that outline the kinds of behavior that please God, the kind of life that he wants us to live. The Bible does clearly outline boundary lines that God commands us not to cross. But I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that the Bible is a book of rules that God gives us so that we could use it to get to heaven. Ultimately, that's not the primary reason why Scripture was given to us is as a rule book so that we could follow it and through that obedience get to heaven. The gospel at its core is about the good news of what Jesus has already done for us. You see, the main emphasis is not on what you're supposed to do, but on what Jesus has already done for you. I want you to think about it this way. What is your typical reaction when somebody gives you good advice? I think the wheels start turning in our heads and we think about a plan of action, don't we? About how we can apply that advice to our life and have a better life. What is your reaction when you're given a list of rules to obey? Again, I think the attention is very self-focused, isn't it? It's the sense of guilt or burden of these are the things that I must do now in order to be compliant with this message that I've received. You see, whether it's about good advice or a list of rules, the focus immediately falls on ourselves, what I must do. But I want to ask you this. What is your reaction when you receive good news? I think it's really simple, isn't it? When you hear good news, the most natural reaction is simply joy, isn't it? It's simply joy and celebration. I think about the day when, as a high school student, I first asked my wife, Betty, to go out with me, you know? I was so nervous. Uh, I, I, to be honest with you, I thought she was way out of my league, and there's no way she's going to date me. And she said yes. <laughs> I have no idea why she said yes, but she said yes. That was incredibly good news. I was just so happy. I think about the day as a senior in college when I opened up that envelope and found out that I got accepted to medical school. 
I mean, that was good news. It was just pure celebration in my heart. It reminds me of also uh, dear friends of mine that uh, I observed for many years struggling with infertility and just the sorrow and the pain of that journey that they were on, wanting to conceive and have children but were unable to. And then one day they informed me we're pregnant. And it, was, it felt like it was a miracle. I mean, they were struggling with infertility for so long. And it just reminds me of the utter relief and joy that I felt for them. You see, that's the nature of good news, right? Good news. And I wonder what comes to your mind when you think about the best news that you ever received in your life. Can you think of any moments like that when you received unbelievably good news. Maybe it was landing that dream job that you thought was a moonshot that you would never get in a million years. But somehow, out of all those applicants, you got that job. Maybe it's news from the doctor, doctor's office. The cancer is all gone. Everything is okay. You see, what Jesus is saying is the gospel belongs in that category of information. It's good news. It's not about you. It's not about what you've done necessarily. It's about what God has done for you. And so what ought to happen is a natural reaction of joy and thankfulness. And I think that's a challenge for all of us in this room. Does the gospel message still carry in your heart a joy, a celebration? Is it good news? In the opening words of Luke's gospel, in the very first message that I preached in the series on Luke, we looked at these words. In Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us, by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. You see, what Luke is saying is that in his gospel, his main purpose was not to record all the teachings of Jesus, so that we can know how to live a better life. In other words, it was not good advice that Luke was trying to record. What Luke says is, my purpose of my investigation was to give an account of the life of Christ so that I can inform you of what Jesus fulfilled already. That is the purpose of Luke's gospel. Is I want to inform you what Jesus accomplished through his life. That's why Luke calls his own book good news. It's good news for you because this is what Jesus has done for you. Well, what exactly is the content of this good news that is proclaimed in the gospel? A couple weeks ago, the last time I preached, I talked about this idea of the messianic secret, how Jesus hid his identity from the people during most of his public ministry. 
But in the final days, we see a very dramatic turnaround in which he becomes much more open about revealing his identity as the Messiah. And a key part of this revelation of letting the people know who he finally is has to do with his authority. His authority. He begins to reveal that he has a claim over everything in this world. In fact, this fight over his authority is the very thing that's going to get him killed within those days of his final week on earth. It's interesting that in his preparation to enter Jerusalem for his final time, he tells his disciples, go to so-and-so's house at this address, and you're going to find a young donkey there. And what I want you to do is, I don't want you to ask any permission or anything. I don't want you to buy it. I just want you to take it. And so the disciples go, and they just take this donkey from this person's house. And he says, if anyone asks you why you're taking my donkey, you just tell him the Lord has need of it. And that's exactly what happens. This guy sees these strangers show up at his house and start to untie his donkey, and he says, what's up, man? Why are you taking my donkey? And they say, oh, Jesus wants it. And there's no argument. There's no fight. He just, they just leave with it. Now, you know, we're told in the Bible that Jesus never sinned. But how is this not stealing, you know? How is this not stealing? Well, it's not stealing because I think Jesus is saying, you know, the truth is every donkey is mine. I, I can take whatever I want from this world because every animal in this world belongs to me. And he, so he just takes this donkey. It's an expression of authority. Then as Jesus enters Jerusalem and the people welcome him as a king, they literally sing to him, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. We saw in that message two weeks ago, earlier in his ministry when they wanted to forcibly crown him as king, he refused. He walked away from that. But it's interesting that here in this moment, Jesus no longer refuses. He gladly receives the accolades of the crowd. Yes, call me king, because that's exactly what I am. The very next day, he storms into the temple, chasing out the money changers and the merchants selling the animals. And then he begins to teach after he cleans house. And again, the message is very clear. This is my house. This house belongs to me, and I can do whatever I want in my house. The chief priests and the other leaders clearly began to see this change in Jesus' ministry as he began to claim his rightful authority so that by Luke 20, verse 2, we find these words from the chief priests. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? In fact, it's going to be this very fight over who has legitimate authority in Israel to rule God's people that's going to get Jesus killed. Because he says, you are illegitimate leaders of the people of God. I am the one true king. And I am coming to Jerusalem this final time to claim what rightfully belongs 
to me. After Jesus dies and rises from the dead, his final message to his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18, uh, includes these words. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Here's the question. What does Jesus' authority have to do with the good news of the gospel? Well, I think the answer is found in a passage that Pastor Peter preached on recently. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41 to 42, as Jesus is ready to enter Jerusalem, he stops and he begins to weep over the city. And he says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. What Jesus laments is the fact that your Savior has come to you this day. And you're rejecting him. If only you had realized that this authority that I am claiming over my people is the very thing that you need to bring peace that you long for, then you can know the salvation I have come to bring. But here is the thing. The religious leaders and the Jews in Jesus' day did not see his message as good news. They actually saw it as bad news. They were threatened by it. Because they had their own plans and their own dreams, their own desires for their life. And what Jesus says is this. If my message is going to be good news to you, there has to be a moment of genuine surrender to my authority over you. This little kingdom that you've been building all of your life, when I come in as king over you, the truth is I'm going to have to tear down that kingdom before I can build my own in you. And that's pretty threatening for a lot of us, isn't it? Because the truth is we all like our little kingdoms. We're all very protective of these things that really matter to us. But if this Easter message of the good news of the gospel is going to have any real meaning in our lives, then there is an aspect of surrender that has to be real. Christ, take your rightful place in my heart. Lord, reign as king over me. I'm tired of trying to fix my own life. I'm just tired of just trying to find good advice because all the good advice in the world doesn't save me because I am weak in my flesh. I can't do it in my own power. And so for the gospel to be good news, we have to first receive the bad news that we cannot save ourselves. That for Christ to reign in me, there has to be a surrender, a breaking in me in which I give him authority over my life. And I just want to ask you that simple question this morning. Has that fundamental transaction happened in your life? You see, you can come to church every Sunday. You can do all kinds of Christian things in your life. But that is an honest question every one of us 
has to wrestle with? Have I given the ultimate authority, the throne of my heart, to Christ and Christ alone so that He can reign over me and have utter, total authority over my life? Even as a Christian, we know that there are pockets in our life that we don't want to lose control to, aren't there? There are definitely some places in our life where basically there's a clear keep out sign before God. Say, don't touch this, God. Don't mess with this. Don't mess with my family. Don't touch my kids. Don't interfere with my marriage. Don't touch my money. That's my business, God. And the Easter message is this. The joy the true joy and the freedom that Christ came to bring only can be had when we surrender it all to the authority of Jesus Christ. I want to return, though, (coughs) to this issue of joy that I mentioned earlier in the message. In this final week, John's gospel records an interesting conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. And he talks to them about the fact that he's going to leave them in just a little bit. And he says, you're going to go through this season where you're going to be really sad because I'm not going to be around anymore. And in John chapter 16, verse 20 to 22, he says this, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. It's interesting. Jesus compares the life of a Christian with a woman giving birth to a baby. And what he's saying is is this. Even though you're one of my followers, I'm not going to shield you from the pains and the troubles of this world. You will know pain. In fact, as a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, you're going to even know more pain even than this world experiences. I'm not going to shield you or protect you from all of that. It's going to be like the pain of a woman in labor. And I watched that five times with a woman I love go through all of that without any anesthesia. I mean, that gave me a level of respect for my wife that is just, I I could never do that in a million years. But here's the thing is, you're going through that torture, and when the baby is finally born... All of that pain just melts away and is replaced by joy. And that's what Jesus says about the joy of the Christian. Is there is pain, but there is a joy that comes from me that this world cannot touch. John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. 
In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus says, you're going to know pain. You're going to know trouble. But if you put your joy in me and in the hope of my return, that is a joy that this world cannot take away from you. It's a joy that this world cannot touch. And I want to ask you that sincerely this morning. Do you know that joy? Do you know that joy that this world cannot touch? I find it interesting, you know, I think about the, <coughs> almost on a weekly basis in my um, social media streams, there's almost always a birth announcement somewhere, right? About someone who just had a baby. And I've never seen a post that goes something like, worst day in our lives, unbelievable pain, so sleepy and tired, and dreading the sleepless nights ahead. Never seen anyone post a birth announcement like that, right? It's always joy, right? We want to thankfully announce the birth of our daughter, yada, 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 weighing so-and-so, always telling us the length. I don't know who cares about the length of a child, right? But I guess it's important data because everyone always lists the length of the child. And you go on and on, and it's just pure celebration, isn't it? But having gone through that experience five times myself, I know the darker side to that, right? I know the pain that this woman must be in in that moment. And yet, the announcement is just celebration. It's just joy. And I think that is what Jesus is saying to Christians. There's pain in this world. There is genuine, real pain and trouble. But if you put your hope in me, there is this joy that nothing in this world can touch. Well, just last night as I was working through this sermon, I was uh, distracted by the sound of my youngest son, Judah, who's in fifth grade, constantly giggling upstairs. It was getting to the point where I couldn't even work on my sermon anymore because the guy was laughing so much. And I was like, what is this guy doing right now? So I quietly crept up the stairs to see what this kid was doing. And he was on an iPad watching these YouTube videos. And I was just looking over his shoulder. I go, Judah, what are you doing? He goes, oh, nothing. But he just couldn't help himself. So he's going like, yee, just like laughing and laughing at it. And I was looking at the video like, what is this? You know, I don't even know what this is, why this is so funny, you know. But he was expressing this kind of delight that it seems like only kids express, not adults. And you know, as I just witnessed him doing that last night, I remember thinking like, I can't even remember the last time I giggled like that, you know. It must be a couple decades since I giggled like that, that unselfconsciously. And then I thought about how I actually enjoy comedies, and I watch a good number of comedies. But one of the observations I made about myself is, like, I never actually laugh when I'm watching these comedies, you know? I just, at most, I smile, you know? And it's kind of this knowing smile that's more like, oh, that was good writing, you know? Because <laughs> I'm so jaded, you know? Like, um, this is just adult life, isn't it? Is 
I would, to be honest with you, say that it's rare that in any given moment of my life, that the best way to describe my state of mind or the condition of my heart is joy. Joy. I think the problem is I'm always in this problem solver mode. I'm always trying to fix my world. I'm always trying to fix something. And if you're going to be a problem solver, you got to focus on the problems, right? And so it just, I've come to realize that in almost any given situation, I seem to be hardwired to see that cup half empty rather than half full. And I think the truth is most of us in this room are just like me, aren't we? It's always about what's wrong with the world. It's always about what's wrong with myself. It's always about what's wrong with everybody. And it ends up choking out any hope of joy in our life. John Orberg confesses, most of my life is spent in transit, trying to get somewhere, waiting to begin, driving someplace, standing in line, waiting for a meeting to end, trying to get a task completed, worrying about something bad that might happen, or being angry about something that did happen. These are all moments when I am not likely to be fully present, not to be aware of the voice and purpose of God. Ironically, often the thing that keeps me from experiencing joy is my preoccupation with self. The very selfishness that keeps me from pouring myself out for the joy of others also keeps me from noticing and delighting in the myriad small gifts God offers each day. I really, really relate to this confession of John Ortberg. Sometimes I feel like my life is just one endless chain of pressures and worries and problems and frustrations. And as Ortberg rightly identifies, the common denominator in this life perspective underneath all of that is a preoccupation with ourselves. It's all on me. I got to fix it. I got to fix everything. Because when all we see is ourselves, our needs, our problems, our efforts, and never see God in that picture, then it becomes impossible to experience true joy, the joy of the gospel, the joy of salvation. And I want to tell you this brothers and sisters. This joy issue is not a luxury. It's absolutely essential to the Christian life. I think for a lot of us, when we think about joy, we think of it as child's play, you know? Like that kind of giggling and mirth and happiness, that's for little kids. When you grow up and you get real about how the world works and you become an adult, then you outgrow that childishness. And unfortunately, we assume that means you outgrow joy. But as C.S. Lewis says, joy is the serious business of heaven. The Bible says you were made for joy. That joy of the Lord is not an optional thing. And if you deny your need for it, you put yourself in an incredibly vulnerable position to be susceptible to all of the cheap substitutes that this world will flood your heart with. 
to try to satisfy that hunger that God has put in you for real joy. Starving for that joy that your heart longs for. You're going to look for it in all of the wrong places. So how do we find this joy? Well, I think as the gospel suggests, you've got to take your eyes off of yourself and turn your gaze to God, remembering what he has done for you. Dallas Willard writes, The suffering and terror of life will not be removed, no matter how spiritual we become. It is because of this that a healthy faith before God cannot be built and maintained without heartfelt celebration of His greatness and goodness to us in the midst of our suffering and terror. As Willard points out, there has to be an intentionality to this celebration. That you have to intentionally take your eyes off of your problems, off of yourself, and turn it to God and remember what He has done. The psalmist in Psalm 103, verse 1 through 5 says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your renewed youth is renewed like the eagles. Let's pray.